0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. If uh, by chance I haven't had the opportunity to, to meet you or shake your hand, my name is Jesse and uh, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. We um, uh, are glad you're here. Definitely thankful for our visitors. And of course, it's just always good to see those of you who continually support and love SBC and come here on a weekly basis. We're thankful for you. Uh, we are going to be in James. We're continuing our series in James. So uh, if you could turn to the book of James, that'd be great. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, this morning, if, if for a chance you, you don't have one, you want to follow along, just raise your hand, keep your hand up, and one of the ushers will gladly uh, place the Bible in your hand. And uh, the, this morning, I want to make one announcement, and then we get to do some baptisms b- before I preach, because we have communion today, so we're going to fit a bunch of stuff in. Uh, one is um, uh, for the parents and families, we want to thank you for your patience as we've been putting in our check-in system over the last several weeks. And just want to make another point of emphasis on that, uh, the importance of it. Um, it, it, well, we've had a couple parents who, who are comfortable with us. They've been here for, for a long time, and they love our church, and, and they've been like, why do I have to deal with this sticker and uh, the system? Everybody knows me, uh, and, and that's not true. Not everybody knows you, uh, and, uh, and the reality is, is we want to make sure your kids are safe. So we've had a couple instances where, like, older kids, like eight years old, would try to check out their, like, five-year-old, to, like, brother or sister, <laughs> And we have 30 volunteers over there, not all at once, but 30 volunteers that help out with the children's ministry, which is a tremendous number, but not all 30 of them know you or your child. And so it's really awkward for them uh, to release a six-year-old to an eight-year-old or some other variation of that age. Uh, and so we want to make sure you have that tag uh, that we give you, and your name is on that tag. So if by, by chance I'm sorry, you're not, not your name, there's a code on there. Uh, And that code allows you to get your child, and we are trying to make sure you don't lose that code, because we generally don't want to keep your children. Uh, We want you to make sure you go home with your child at the end of the day. Uh, And then, um, if by chance you lose that tag, uh, it's okay, you just need, uh, on your child is your name, so you just need to have a driver's license, or a passport, or something like that, and and we'll make sure you get your child. Someone said that they were going to lose their ID, they were going to lose their tag, and they were going to leave their kid here forever, and... I don't know if that's really a good thing to say. So
1: um,
0: so that's that. And, and then this morning, um, we're going to do some baptism, so, uh, which is a, a great thing for us to do. We've got two this morning. I'm going to do one, uh, and then our youth pastor, John's going to do one. Uh, the first one I get to do this morning is uh, Matthew Sandstrom. His mom was up here just singing, and uh, he's off to school, and he gets to get dunked. So wh- where are you, Matthew? I thought you were sitting right there. Oh, he's changing. Okay. Matthew, we're ready for you nice nice appropriate attire take out your yourself they're waterproof these days so <laughs> he's okay so go ahead and get in you can get on um you're taller so yeah let, let's let's face everybody so come forward i'll direct you here we'll just get on your knees there now um as Sierra Bible Church, if you're not familiar, we, uh, first of all, this is a, is the water okay? Yeah. Oh, good. No snow. <laughs> no snow. Yeah, no snow. We brought it in from outside overnight. Oh, okay. so. Nice. Um, so at the church here, one of the things that we wanted to make an emphasis of is baptism. It's a commandment. Uh, God commands us as believers to proclaim to one another as well to, as to well as the world uh, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and that we've died with Christ. That's the emphasis of going under the water. And that, like Christ, we've been raised new again. We're new creatures in him. And we're washed clean of our sins, just as Brad uh, sung with us as a congregation. And so, Matthew, um, I want to ask you to just uh, proclaim to the church here with a simple yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins? Yes. And do you believe that, like Christ, you've died with him and that you're a new creature, a new creation in him? Yes. Awesome. Let me pray for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll baptize you. Lord, we thank you for Matthew, we thank you for his proclamation to you, uh, before you, and to his brothers and sisters in Christ and to his family, that you and you alone are the true God that loves us, that died on our behalf, that transferred from yourself, Lord, uh, your righteousness to us and our sin to you. And we thank you, Lord, that he has the opportunity now uh, to do the same thing you did so many years ago, to be baptized in your name. So, Lord, now I do baptize him in your name. Your name, the Father's name, and the Holy Spirit. All right. You ready? No, I'm good. All right, John. John, come on up, buddy. This is for me. And Jack, you can. There you go. Jack's ready. Good. Nice, appropriate attire. This is Jack Gilpin. He has really nice hair. <laughs> um, it's been a pleasure being a youth pastor for five years now and the whole time having Jack in our youth group. And um, I think it'd be great if you could hear from Jack a little bit about the process uh, God has brought him through in faith. Um, so, you ready? Sure. So, as always... Raised in a Christian environment, my parents were Christian, my brother was Christian, all my friends were Christian. I went to wanna church, youth group, all of that, and for some reason I slowly faded away from being Christian. I don't know why, it just, just happened, I guess. And then I eventually became an atheist. And when I was an atheist, I started to grow more and more depressed. I started having suicidal thoughts. I was just in a, a bad, place, bad place in my life. And one day at youth group, at one of John's sermons, something just clicked. It just all made sense. I can't, can't really explain it. It just, Jesus makes sense. God made sense. Everything just fit together, I guess. You want to jump in? So it was a um, kind of a, uh, a tough thing for, for Jack to do. He's he's not doesn't like being out up front, and um, I appreciate you guys uh, being willing to do that and. Uh, it's neat for us to be able to be a part of that, so thank you guys for letting us be a part of a special day. And, and then also for, for you, if you haven't been baptized and, and you want to proclaim your faith to your family, uh, the, the reason we've done it this way is it's an easy setup for us. The water is warm. Uh, and so Matthew, uh, initially when he contacted me, he said, I, I want to do it uh, in December or January, and, and I'm a really, really big in the outdoors, and so if we can do it outside, that would be great. Uh, and I, I said, no, it's too cold. Um, that's number one. But I said, number two, I said, it'd be really difficult to get our, chi- our entire church family out to the river or out to Tahoe. And baptism is supposed to be a public proclamation, not a private thing, and not just with family. And so um, we can set this up really easy. The the water temperature is about 100 degrees when we put it in. So I think it's probably about 80 right there. John, what do you think? Yeah, warm enough. Warm enough. So, um, not that that should be a reason for us to convince you to be baptized. Hey, the water's warm. Jump in, it'll be fine. So, uh, no, seriously, though, just contact me or one of the other pastors. Uh, any of us can do it. So if for some reason you got a, a pastor that's on our staff that you find to be your favorite and it's not me, it's not going to hurt my feelings, I'm just excited to see people get baptized. So uh, reach out to someone, a friend, or what have you, and, and uh, we'll make sure uh, that we, we dial in a date. James chapter 4. James um, chapter 4. We have a tradition at SBC uh, that we care deeply about God's Word, we love God's Word, and so if you're able to this morning, would you stand with me as we read from chapter 4, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Lord, we trust your word to be true to us this morning, to minister to our souls, to draw us closer to yourself, to reveal and give power to repent of sin, to be comforted, Lord, for our joy to increase. All of these things we know are possible in you. In Jesus' name, the church said, You may be seated. The title this morning, for those of you who <clears throat> like taking notes or like knowing the direction that we're going in, um, is The Will of God and the Worry of Man. Uh, I used to do youth ministry. John has taken over my position several years now that he's been doing that, and I haven't been doing it. But uh, as a youth pastor, it, it is was always incredible to me, and I think part in part because of the age, you know, kids are always asking, you know, what is God's will for my life? What does God want for my life? Especially when they start getting ready for college or preparing for college, and then the question arises, you know, do I go to college? Do I not go to college? Do I go into the trades? there's just a huge question mark. And then as life progresses, eventually you start to ask the question, well, is it God's will for me to be married? And if it is, then who do I marry? And that's a whole nother conversation in and of itself to decide if God is willing you to marry a particular person. And then when do I get married? What's the right age? I wanted to get married uh, about 21 years old. My mom said to me, you won't get married till you're 25. And that felt like it was forever away. And yet that's exactly what happened. I got married at 25 and people ask me how do you know when you're ready uh, to be married to that I said I'm still not ready and yet I'm still married so uh, and people ask the same thing about kids you know what's God's will for kids what's God's will for, how many kids um, all of which uh, God continually revealed a new will for me that I didn't know it, it existed right for me it was one kid and then uh, I didn't, I'm good with one one's good that's hard enough and then two uh, and, and then three, and then God said his will was four. I had no say in that. And um, all that to be said, there's this great question mark for us, even in life. If it's not at a young age, you still deal with that as an adult. What's God's will in a move? Some of you have moved here recently. Some of you are considering a move, possibly. Uh, what is God's will for my job? What is God's will as I parent my child now in the place in life that I am at? All that to be said, there's, a, there's this question of overall what is God's will? Now, James has highlighted a couple things about true faith. So as we've been studying this book, the challenge that has been placed before us is that, is that God has kind of particular markers for someone who's truly been saved, evidence that somebody really has a, a belief, a real knowledge in Jesus Christ. A couple of those things in James and a little bit outside of the context of James is, number one, we, we see that a true believer has a love of God's Word, that there's a deep desire to know God's Word, to study it, to listen to it, to enjoy it, uh, and that not only do we have a love of God's Word, but we have a desire to obey God's Word, right? Uh, Not be a hearer only, but a doer as well, James says. We also see that a believer, a true believer, has a life of repentance. It doesn't happen just at the the one-time occurrence when you get saved, but that the life of a believer is a life where you're continually uh, repenting from old habits, bad habits, sinful habits, to righteous behavior, we also know that believers are devoted to living for the glory of God, and that there's a deep love for people in the church, but also people who don't know Christ. So we should have an overall love, a particular love for us in the congregation, for our, our own people, but also a love for those who aren't like us, that don't know him. And, and we also have seen, because James is a book of growth, a uh, million-dollar words, sanctification, that, that we're to be sanctified, set apart, but also continually growing. And so a, a marker of a true believer is growth, that we are not stagnant and that we desire to continue to grow. And we recognize that that really growth is is not an option. Maybe decay is an option, but stasis is definitely not an option. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said you're either growing closer to God or farther away from God. You kind of see that playing out in the Tahoe-Truckee area where you have a lot of people in the area who have loved and really enjoy what Truckee was or has been And the reality is, is Truckee has to change because there's no such thing as not change. It can't stay the same. If it stays the same, eventually it'll die. And so we see our town growing in all kinds of different ways. I'm not here to tell you uh, which of those ways are good and which of those ways are not, but it's inevitable. Change is inevitable. Growth is inevitable. Now, out of all of that, you could summarize that the most important marker of a believer's life, the most important marker of a believer's life is a desire to, to do the will of God, to actually live for God's will, not the will of self, but God's will. In fact, we're told in Scripture that doing God's will is a mark of being part of the family of God, as Jesus said in Mark 3.35. Uh, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother or mother. Um, It's a mark of being part of the new kingdom that God has established, Matthew 7.21. It's a part that shows that we live for eternity, 1 John 2.17 and and that whole idea of got the will of god is summarized in the life of jesus jesus himself states that his whole purpose is to live for the will of god john 434 jesus said to them my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work john 530 i can do nothing of my own as i hear i judge and my judgment is just because i seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me so jesus whole mission is basically, You could summarize this, he's here to do the will of God, and we're here to do the will of God. Now again, you're at a particular point in your life, whether it's in your family or your business practices, and you should be asking the question, well, what is God's will? I want you to note something here. James is actually talking about a particular, uh, very popular profession in the day of James which was a merchant, basically someone who would go to a city, just as it states, they would do business there for a particular time, a type of trade, they would make a profit, and they would leave. Now, now, let me tell you that James is not rebuking the idea that you shouldn't have a plan. So he's not here saying to you and I, listen, listen, don't plan, just live by the Spirit, flow by the seat of your pants, You know, don't worry about how your, your bills are going to be paid next month, God will take care of it. You know, Have you met those kind of Christians, by the way? They're all kinds of fun to hang out with. And he's not saying, don't plan. So the issue isn't planning. The issue issue is the arrogance that James says. And here's the warnings here. Verse 16, he uses that word arrogant. The arrogance is you're ignoring God's will in the process. It's not planning. It's planning without inquiring of God. Uh, MacArthur says it this way. Wise planning and uh, strategizing in business is not, of course, sinful, And and is, in and of itself, commendable, which Scripture does point to. No spiritual principles are violated by anything the businessman said. The problem lies in what they did not do. They did extensive planning, but in the course of their planning, they totally ignored God. God was not part of their agenda. So just think about all of the different decisions you make where maybe you haven't inquired of God. What theologians call this, when you do this, by the way, what theologians call it is practical atheism. Practical atheism. It's it's the idea that you have just forgotten that God even exists in your practical life. That's atheism, to not believe in God. It means that practically, it means you may say, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but practically I live as if he doesn't exist. So you're not praying to God about the decisions you make. You're not looking at scripture about the decisions you make. You're just, you're doing your own thing. It's literally, what this literally means within practical atheism is is it's not that you're just denying God. You're forgetting that he exists altogether. You're just not acknowledging that he exists. It's forgetting a couple things here. Uh, The Westminster Confession, Article 5.1. It doesn't mean anything to you, not that you care about the article, but I have this book uh... called the westminster confession it's a little book on the confession uh... from westminster and uh... in it it's it's a fun book for me because it has the original confession which was written a long time ago and then it has a modern translation uh... so it's easier to read and then it has a commentary to help you understand what's being said now confessions are really good so some of you some of you have no idea what i'm talking about and it's it's kind of okay and and what it is is basically confession is back in the day men would get together and they would say listen the, the Christian faith is under attack. And basically what they're saying is that scripture was being undermined. And so these men would get together. They would study the Bible together for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then they would say, this is what we believe based off of scripture. This is what we believe. And they would put it in a, a, a just a punch filled, just packed filled little article that was short and small, but it just said the truth and it said it punchy and it wasn't too wordy, right? Um, and in fact, it used to be that with confessions and catechisms, when a pastor went through seminary, they had to write their own confessions and write their own catechisms. It's kind of lost today, which is unfortunate, because a lot of pastors don't know what they believe, which is a shame. You should know what you believe. And confessions help with that. So here, here, is, here is the Westminster uh, definition in regards to God's will. So it's kind of fun about the book, you look up God's will, and this is what Westminster says. Uh, this is translated... Uh, for us to be uh, a little easier to read, by the way. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. He exercises this most wise holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. To the praise of his glory for his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Okay, so if you're like me, like I geek out on that because I'm like, there's so much there. There's a six-part series here. There's an eight-part sermon series here. And, and he's saying a lot with a little, right? It's, it's like my dream to be able to do that as a pastor. Say a lot by saying a little, right? And you're all like, yes, amen. Please be less wordy. Um so a couple of things that he's saying here, like like James is saying, listen, if you live without without asking about God's will in your life, you're forgetting these things. You're forgetting them. And and it's because you're forgetting them because you're you're doing it your way. This arrogant, prideful attitude is, listen, I want to do it my own way. And and there's there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 14. And that passage in Isaiah 14. It's it's kind of a summary of why Satan fell. So God in this passage that I'm going to show you here in a moment is rebuking Satan because of Satan's attitude. And I want you to see Satan's attitude here from God's word. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. This is language for the devil. How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? So you see the power of his satanic Work, laying the nations low. Verse 13, you said in your heart, notice there's five here, I wills. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my thrones on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. This is a great passage where we see that Satan actually has no power over us. He has fallen, but we see why he has fallen. And he's fallen because he has set a plan to himself that he will accomplish without inquiring of God. And it's all about him. I will, I will, I will. There's five of them. Now, if you take note of the passage before you, there are five I will statements uh, here also. And and they're not stated as I will, they're stated differently. But there are five things that the person in the passage says that they're going to do without inquiring of God. Number one, they say today or tomorrow. What are they doing? They're stating their own timetable. I'm going to accomplish something based on a timeline that I deem appropriate. Number two, they choose their own location. We're going to go to such and such a city. It's a generic term for they're stating they're going to go to a particular city. Then they state how long they're going to be there, how long they'll be there. We'll spend so much time there, they say. Number four, they will choose their own trade. They're going to engage in a particular kind of business. And number five, they choose their own goal. We're going to make a profit. That's the goal. We're going to make a profit. Now, none of this is bad in and of itself, right? What's bad is, is again, they've made a plan, and it revolves around what they want to accomplish, and they have not inquired of God. Now, all of us, to one degree or another, we want to be... In control, we want our will to be done. It's, this is an incredibly frustrating thing. And the reason, the reason that the message this morning is the will of God and the fear of man is when you do life this way, it will lead to an incredible amount of anxiety because you're not in control. No, uh, we'll, we'll get there in a moment. But this idea of forgetting about God can actually drive you to anxiety. Just as Jack stated, he, he was saying, listen, as an atheist, I, I began to have depression and anxiety. And the reason for that is because when you're forgetting God, you're, you're thinking you're in control, all the while real, knowing down deep you're not in control. Life can change at any moment. I want to read to you another quote here before we move on. Proverbs 21, 7 expresses this principle, to not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what what a day may bring forth. Life is far from simple. It is a complex matrix of forces, events, people, contingencies, and circumstances over which we have little or no control, making it impossible for anyone to ascertain design or assure any specific future. Despite that, some people foolishly imagine that they are in charge of their lives. So here's the natural, the natural idea for, for us as human beings is we want... To think and believe and feel like we're in charge of our own life. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe me on this, let me just give you a few examples where it's really true. Okay? Uh, How many of you, when you drive with your spouse, are the one that has to drive? And because if you're in the if you're in the passenger seat, you feel a little anxious, right? So here's here's the truth in my marriage. My wife is a better driver than me. She is. She's had less speeding tickets. And less accidents. I I haven't had that many speeding tickets, so don't rebuke me. uh, I'm just witnessing to the police officers, that's all. I pulled them over. Give them the gospel. Um, Sitting in a passenger seat, especially with someone driving, you're usually highly critical of their driving. they're too far to the left or they're too far to the right or they're going too fast. You want to tell them to slow down. Now, there's one particular instance for me as a child that whenever my mom drove, I I was really scared of that. Don't tell her I said that, but that was a frightening experience. Driving with my dad, though, there was just something comfortable about letting go of the control. I, I knew he was a good driver. I trusted my dad. I knew he was a good man, and I could fall asleep in the car. There are some people I drive with, I just don't fall asleep, right? You don't. In fact, I remember years ago when when my wife and I went to Papua New Guinea, and we landed in Australia, flew over to Papua New Guinea. Once we were in Papua New Guinea, we had to take this little hopper plane that was used to fly all over the island, and these little hopper planes were well used, and we got in this thing, it fit just my wife and I. That's all it could fit. That's how small this plane was. There was a pilot. I didn't fly it. That's the problem. If I could fly, I would have. You trust me. And so we're flying, and he's dodging He's dodging what he is saying. There's thunderstorms over there. If we go over there, we're going to get electrocuted and die. And so we're in the jungle, where there's, so there's thunderstorms everywhere. And we were driving through these clouds, and there's enough, enough moisture in the clouds, and the plane was so old, my feet and my legs were getting wet. There was water coming into the airplane. Okay? So we finally land in Papua New Guinea to this little island, and it was about a, a two-hour flight. And as we got out of the plane, I looked to the pilot, and I said to him, my butt cheeks hurt. And he says, is the seat hard? And I said, no, I've been clenching the whole time. This was a scary flight. <laughs> so the, the, there, there's something about not being in control. However, however, I should just relax, right? I, I, I can't, there's nothing I can do. I'm in the plane. There is nothing I can do. But we want to be in control. We want the end result to be something that we desire. Now, now the reason this is important is because we want to be in control, but the definition that Westminster gives us is there's only one particular person, that being Jesus Christ, that's actually in control. And we're told, we're told something in that confession that is really, really powerful and very meaningful. It says that he makes decisions, he exercises his decisions based on his infallible what? Who remembers what the definition said? His infallible foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen. And not only does it say his infallible, his perfect foreknowledge, it goes on to say that he makes these decisions based on that which is going to give him the most glory, to the praise of his glory, based off his wisdom, for three good, amazing things, justice, goodness, and mercy. So you don't have that ability, right? We, and anything can change. So we had one of our deacons the other day. He was playing ice hockey, fell down, broke his hip, had to have surgery. His winter is going to look different. He had no control of that, right? I mean, there's wisdom there. Someone might say, you know, you shouldn't play hockey at your age anymore. Slow down. But, there, but the point being is anything can happen. You can get the cancer diagnosis. You could have to have a surgery. Someone could pass away. You don't know. Now, with this said, now we come into some rubs. We come into some stuff, where the, again, that creates this anxiety in us. You go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Bad things happen. And they happen at the most random moments. And, and how am I? Wh- wh- how do I know that this is good? So you don't have the foreknowledge that God has. You ever heard of the uh, the butterfly effect? It's this idea that like you know you could kill a butterfly, and by killing a butterfly, it can you know affect something else and affect something else, and eventually the whole future's changed because one small butterfly died. There's a, a, another. Um, there, there's all kinds of ways that. That this can play out. I think I saw a recent study that said, "Listen, we're really fearful that, you know, if the honeybee dies and the honeybee's extinct, then we're all going to go right. If the if this teeny little bee goes, then humanity's done for because bees take control of all the pollen and all this and right. Like it's, it's just this idea that one small little thing can have a major implication down the road. If you look into the Old Testament and you see all the prophecies, you see all the beautiful little nuances of Scripture and how it impacts." and gives a greater dimension to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, it'll blow you away. I think it's one of the best apologetic defenses that we have, is to show people, like, look, look at all this stuff back here. Look at all the ways that it ties together. And any good Bible teacher will show you just these different layers of how it gets tied into the Old Testament. You go, whoa, that's, that, that's like, amazing. One of my pastor buddies posted uh, uh, the, all of the names from, like, Adam and Eve uh, all the way to... to uh, to Abraham or something like that, and, and all of their meanings. And if you write them down in timeline, in their original Hebrew language, if you write all those names down, it states something along the lines of, you know, God, from the beginning, we fell, uh, and he died for our sins. I'm simplifying it, but, but basically, all of the Old Testament names put together give us a gospel message. And you go, is that, is that happenstance? Or is it just coincidence? Or did God in his design show us that he has always been working in time past. If you look in the Old Testament, you will see a lot of tragedies, really hard things that God used for his glory. Even sin. There's a passage that says that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, in your life, when you're in control, you can't control what happens. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you have. You can't control what happens at the end of the day. There's only one person who knows, and it's God. And as God does it, he does it for his good as well as our good, or another way to say it, for his glory and our good. So how, um, how do you know the will of God? How, does, how do you, how do you like, figure that out? So if you're at this place, like right, we've, has anyone ever asked that question? What is God's will for me? What is God's will for my child? You're going to ask it at some other point. And and there's a couple things that James tells us to consider in the passage in regards to knowing God's will that help us to know God's will. Two things to consider, and then a few more that we'll tease out here. Number one, he tells us to consider you have no idea what tomorrow will bring. You see that in the text? He's just saying, he said, listen, if you want to have peace, you want to have less anxiety, you just have to... you have to embrace. You have no idea what tomorrow will bring. So um, an example of that for me was the, the last couple days. You know, I've been looking at the weather reports. What's, what's going to happen? How much snow are we going to get? And at a certain point, I just realized, you know, this is dumb. I'm going to wake up in the morning, and there's going to be what there's going to be. And isn't that the truth? I mean, I think someone posted on uh, Facebook the other day. They saw, you know, the, uh, a, a kind of a funny little picture of um, a weather prediction in Truckee. Uh, 3 to 18 inches. 3 to 18 inches? It could rain. 3 to 18 inches, maybe rain. Or maybe nothing at all, right? And it's funny because most predictions, I read that in the, a guy I follow pretty regularly, and he does a pretty good job predicting, and it was something like in that range of like 3 to 18 inches. But dude, that's a difference. 3 to 18 inches. Uh, it'd be funny if you just put 3 inches and 18 feet. It, it, you just don't know. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know when you're going to break a leg. You don't know when you're going to get hurt. You don't know when you're going to get sick. Your plan, you just, and what, what the Bible is saying is embrace it. Embrace that God knows and, and quit trying to figure everything out. He's not, again, he's not saying don't have a plan. He's inquire of God. And, and as my pastor used to tell me when I was in San Diego, we, I worked for a really large church in San Diego, and there were so many ministries, more ministries than I could count, more volunteers than I could count. I think on staff of our, our church, there was 100 staff members. So in a, ch- a church that size, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening, a lot of people calling in, a lot of people hurting, a lot of counseling appointments, a lot of memorial services, a lot of just everything. And our pastor used to always say, Blessed are the flexible, for they're not bent out of shape. You know, as, as silly as it is, it's probably the most... Theologically true thing that you're going to hear this morning, especially if you're a parent. Blessed are the flexible, for you're not bent out of shape. Just getting your kids dressed in the morning is a practice in being flexible, right? And and so to again, James considers. Listen, just just embrace. You have no idea what tomorrow brings. Number two, he says, life is like a vapor. He says, consider this: life is like a vapor. Ecclesiastes uses the word vapor in regards to life over 40 times. Ecclesiastes is another piece of wisdom literature just like James. James is considered literature of wisdom, how to live life poetically, how to live life well. And Ecclesiastes, even though it's a hard book to read and it can be very depressing, it's a book on wisdom, what to consider, and it says that life is like this vapor. Now let let's let's just consider this for a moment what he means by life is like a vapor. First of all, it is incredibly a short. It is incredibly short life. One of the things that I found to be kind of like, like cruel, but I you just have to embrace it because it is what it is. Is the older I get, the faster life is. And I remember being in high school and be like, dude, my sophomore year is never going to end. I'm sure I said it like that, but with more crackles in the voice, you know. Like this, it's never going to be. And now, now I'm like, it's Christmas. And then tomorrow goes by, it's Christmas again? It just took down the tree. That's how I feel. It took down the tree just the other day. I was like, Wait, I, just, I feel like it just did this. It feels like I'm, you know, if, if I think about it in the place I'm at in life, I feel like I'm just taking down a Christmas tree and putting up a Christmas tree. And, and life, it just moves incredibly fast. And James is saying, listen, life moves so fast, it's too short to be living just for yourself. It just moves too quickly. It's a vapor. But he's also, this metaphor drives us even deeper into the meaning of life. The word that's used in Ecclesiastes is hevel. It it means vapor like it does in James. It also means like smoke or like fog. Now, it used to be back in the day really cool for theologians to get together in a room and smoke a pipe or a cigar. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a big cigar smoker. And someone rebuked him one time and said, you shouldn't smoke cigars. And he says, it's not a sin as long as I'm not smoking them in excess. And someone asked him, what's excess? And he said, two at a time. <clears throat> so this idea, of, <laughs> this idea of smoke, I don't know how, forget it. This idea of, this idea of smoke is, is, first of all, life is beautiful. There's something about watching smoke and the way it moves. It's beautiful and it's mysterious. Uh, likewise, the gospel uh, or the Bible project, who puts out some great videos, when they talk about this in Ecclesiastes, they say what's interesting about smoke is it takes takes one shape. And before you know it, it takes a new one. That life is just moving from one particular thing into another. And that it looks solid to a certain degree, but if you try to grab smoke, it just slips through your fingers. And when you're in the thick of smoke, when you're in the thick of fog, you can't see clearly. And he says life is like that. Life is short and fast, these are the words from Psalm 90.10. Your, your years of life are 70, or if by reason of strength, 80. Isn't it interesting that the Bible has had like that down? Like If you get beyond 80, that's miraculous. He says, listen, if you get 70, you're doing good. And Some of you are like, oh, no. <laughs> and if you're strong because you live in the mountains and you shoveled snow for longer than you should have, you'll make it to 80, Right? And he says, listen, life is fast. And he says this. He says, yet in the span, there is toil and trouble, but they're soon gone and they'll fly away. Life's quick. Life is fast. And it's mysterious. And and you can't grab it. And sometimes, sometimes it changes shape. And it moves. And it goes by. And what James is saying, he's saying, listen, when you're making plans, you've got to consider these things. You've got to consider that life is going to move very fast, and you've got to know that you, you have no idea what tomorrow brings. So, and this is a, again, this is a cure for anxiety, the fear of man. So let me read from you. Jesus tells a parable that ties into this from Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Jesus told them a parable saying, There was a, the land of a rich man who had produced plentifully. So gather, he's rich. He's doing well in life. And he thought to himself, You'll notice the I will kind of statements that he mentions in here. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I will do this, he says. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And in those larger barns, I'll store my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So Jesus is telling this parable. He tells rich man, rich man's doing well in business. Rich man's doing so well, he's got to build bigger barns to put his money in. And he says to himself, now that his barns are filled, now that his bank account is fat, now that business is doing well, he says to himself, nice, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like a good life, doesn't it? Oh, come on, don't lie to me. I know you're in church, but you're like, "Listen, listen, man, if my life was just enjoy good food, enjoy good drink, and kick back and relax, Yeah, that's the dream. That's retirement. That's what he's saying. I've got my 401b. I've got my, I'm I'm ready, man. My mutual funds are ready to get there, man. This is, but then listen to what God says. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool. This is foolish. Fool. This night, your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You notice, I I think in the text, just sitting here before you this morning, I didn't realize this in the first service, this man obviously was so ingrained in his business, he obviously had no friends and family. So he'd been plugging away and working so hard to eat, drink, and relax that his relationships have been torn apart. He's got no one to leave the money to. Or at the very least, he didn't plan to give it to somebody he cares about and now somebody who's going to burn it away well. Whose will they be? He goes on in verse 21. So is the one who lays up his treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Now let me be clear, the issue in the parable isn't about being rich. It's not that you shouldn't be rich, and it's not that you shouldn't plan. Again, the problem is is when you're going about getting rich and you're going about life in such a way that you are not thinking about the greater good of why you exist on this planet. I've had an individual who proclaimed to be a Christian who is very wealthy, tell me to my face that when he died, he was going to give all of his inheritance to the humane society. I know there's dog lovers in the room, but not all dogs go to heaven. I had to break, break, virtual. <laughs> Randy Alcorn's got a great book on heaven, talks about some of that stuff. It saddens me because in my heart, I think the resources we have and the energy that we have should be invested in that which is eternal. It should be invested in children. It should be invested in youth. It should be invested in saving souls. It should be invested in those who can't fight for themselves. That's what justice is. Justice is standing up for somebody who can't stand up for themselves and saying, listen, I have goods... I have, I have provision, I have ability, and it's not to be wasted on myself and to store it up in my house so I can have the best of the wine and the best of the prosciutto, and you can tell the things I like to eat and drink, right? So I can have all of those things, and not, and not I'm not worried about God at all. I'm not worried about the kingdom of God. It amazes me when people come into a church like this and they think to themselves, or they don't think about it at all, how do we provide the free counseling the the discipleship that we provide, giving away books, all of the things that we do as a church, the free trunk-or-treat event. For the most part, all of our youth events are completely free. Free, 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 free! We do it because there are people here in this room who realize and recognize that their money, their talent, their treasure, and their time should be given to the kingdom of God, to the investment of God, that more people would come to know Jesus Christ. And so what he says in in this idea, he said, listen, it's fine to prepare, but you're doing it for yourself. Shame on you. And he said to his disciples. Now, this is the way usually a good sermon works and a good parable or a good teaching of Jesus. He then gets to the practicality of it, even though I've been talking about that the whole time. He shares this parable, and then he tells us practically why he shared it. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore, which means, right, go back to what I just said. Why did I tell you the parable about a rich man building up his retirement? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or about your body or what you'll put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow or reap, They've neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. Even Solomon wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you you little faith. You see what he's saying? He's giving James is giving us the practical wisdom of life, and it's being built upon the same Sermon of the Mount kind of material from Christ, who's saying, you want to cure your anxiety? Stop living for you. Stop planning for you and live for the greater glory of God. Consider God in everything that you do. Invest into the kingdom. Man, our lives would look incredibly different if we bought cars that way, clothing that way. And part of what he's saying, part of what he's saying is, Why are you worried about it? He's saying, you know what, we have this tendency to think, you know what, I need more money for clothes for my kids. Uh, That's just me. I'll just put myself on the burner. Lord, how am I going to afford shoes for these children? Because they grow out of them every three weeks. Right? Thank God I have three boys. And the youngest, you kind of feel bad in a materialistic world. You're like, the youngest is wearing the shoes that the oldest wore so many years ago, and then the second one wore, and now he's wearing them. Yeah, they're beat up, but I'm not spending 50 bucks on Nikes for a two-year-old, right? Because they can't afford it. And he's saying, listen, don't worry about it, because here's what inevitably what happens, and I'm... I am just as guilty as this as anybody else. If by some chance I give my time, my treasure, which is my money, and my talents to God, I'm not going to have energy to put it towards something else, or I might not have money to feed my actual family or to take care of my family. What he's saying is, you've got to let that go. God's going to take care of you. And he gives the example. Look at how beautiful a bird is. They don't have a home. <laughs> Look at how God provides for them. And what he's saying is, you're more valuable than the animals. And so, again, we have to step back, okay, Lord, I want to have more peace in my life. I don't want to have all this angst and anxiety. And, in fact, I, I, when I drive in in the mornings on Sundays, I listen to a health program that only plays on Sunday mornings. And uh, I don't get to listen to much of it because I live, I live two miles away from the church, which is, you know, great, uh, except for when people want me all the time, and then it's hard. But... The driving down, I just listened to a quick segment of it, and this morning they were talking about anxiety and fear. And they said it's one of the biggest issues in our culture. And they said, actually, most of the clients that come in for for anxiety and depression are people under the age of 30 years old. And it's tied to a couple different things. And a lot of it is that the technological society we live in makes you, first of all, it isolates you. You know, I was reading a thing, I think I'd shared this before, but it just amazes me. Teen sex is down by like, I think it's at least 10%. It might be as high as 30 It doesn't matter what the number is, but it's down by a tremendous amount. And in part, they're saying for reasons that, number one, a lot of young kids are on their phones. They're not interacting with the other sex. And secondly, the ease of pornography. And so once you get into the digital side of that, they don't know how to connect with people. And so what we have is we have a huge segment of our society that's not just 30 and younger. It's also into the 30s, maybe some into the 40s. We have a large group of, of people in our society who simply don't know how to interact with other human beings. They don't know how to do it. They're isolated because they're spending so much time on a blue screen. So it's all of this looking at the phone, looking at a computer, looking. It's, so we don't know how to have relationships. And that's why over the coming months as we kind of talk about some of the digital stuff we put out there, whether it's on YouTube or the live stream that we're going to do, you cannot supplement that as your church. You have to come and rub shoulders with other human beings. You have to actually look at them in the face and say hi. Occasionally, you might have to actually touch them. Hey. Weird, awkward side hug. That's one of the words We laugh, but, you know, some people... Some people dread coming to church because somebody at the front door might hug them. And there are people who aren't Christians, and I recognize that if you're in the room this morning. Some of, you, some of you need to be able to come into the room, not talk to very many people, hide in the back, and leave early. I've known guys who've done that for a period of time, and they got saved, and then they move up five rows. <laughs> Sanctification. All of this to be said that we have to understand what we invest in. And the reason I mentioned the phone stuff and the depression and anxiety is that Jesus is giving us, he's giving us the solution through James, through the Sermon on the Mount, and through so many other places, the cure for our anxiety and the cure for our angst. And he's telling us to consider what you're doing with your time and if you're considering God in it. That's the issue. And the phone and the game systems and all that stuff that I myself partake in on occasion. If you do not inquire of God how to use those particular devices, you will find yourself completely absorbed in them because you have not considered God's will for your phone. I can't even believe I have to say it. But we have to ask God, how much of the phone do you want to control me? How much of the iPad do you want me to really use? How much Netflix should I actually be participating in? Lord, David said it this way, and he didn't even have a phone. I have made a promise before you, God, to guard the eyes that are in my head because I'm going to look at things that are going to distract me from the kingdom and distract me from God's overall will. So here we are. Okay, God, we don't we want anxiety. We don't want depression. Suicide rates in the United States are higher than they ever have been, and no one knows how to solve it, but I'm telling you, God does. He's telling you the solution. Inquire of me. So how do you get God's will? Number one, you've got to pray for it. Like consider all of the stuff I just mentioned and pray. And over and over again, you'll find Jesus say that that's part of prayer. He says it in the prayer when he's teaching his disciples. Your kingdom come. Right? Let, Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Number two, you have to master scripture and look for All of the things that actually use the words God's will in Scripture. There's many of them. Let me mention a few. The Bible tells us in several occasions. All of these verses, by the way, are in the handout for you. So if you want to look up, I don't have time to get into all of them because I'm running out of time here. You can look at them at home. Um, uh, Looking forward in Scripture, number one, don't live for the flesh. For your natural sinful inclinations. It tells us to commit our ways to Him. Acknowledge Him. Place yourself before God. It tells us that, that God's will is for people to be saved, which means you need to be an evangelist and share your faith. Part of God's will is that you share your faith with people who don't know him. In addition to that, it tells us to be set apart, to be sanctified. God's will is your sanctification, it says, that you look different than the rest of the world. So it doesn't mean, again, you can't have a phone, doesn't mean you can't have a computer, but what, what it does mean is as a Christian, you use it differently differently than your friends, right? This is part of me that goes back to being a youth pastor. I tell the high school kids, if you use your phone the same way that your buddy does, you're no different than them. Like, you should do it, you should use it differently. In addition to that, the Bible tells us, one of my favorite passages in Thessalonians, uh, be thankful for the will of God is this, to be thankful in everything, to give thanks. It, that's an incredible solution to increasing your joy. Don't, don't, God, I'm, I wish I didn't live here. God, I wish it didn't snow so much. God, I wish it wasn't so cold. God, I wish, I wish this, I wish that. No, God, thank you. But for me, because I don't play in the snow all that often, it, it's, it's. I had to get out this morning at 5:30 in the morning so I could be here at church on time, and I had to get out and look at the snow and go, thank you, Lord. And I had to like talk to myself about how beautiful it is that it's all white everywhere. It is, it's beautiful, it is, it's like, it's, it is, it is. I just have to try to make myself believe what's true. It is, it's really, I'm doing it now, okay, because I've got to go home, i still got some snow to plow. It's beautiful, it's so beautiful, and, until it isn't. There's nothing worse than brown snow. Yellow snow's the worst. My neighbor's dogs help me with that. Um, and then find a light in doing the will of God. The Bible says in a few passages, Psalm 40, verse 8, Ephesians 6, 6, not to just be eye-pleasers, but, but to, to find delight in doing God's will, to find joy in it. And, and here's the thing, you know, you're, you're going to leave here just like I am. And you're, you're still going to want to do things your way. You're still, gonna, you're still going to fight and think that you're in charge of your life. And you're going to plan you're, you're going to plan. You're going to leave here and you're going to plan. And inevitably, what's going to happen to your plan is it's going to fall apart. Because that's what happens to a lot of plans. And then you're going you're gonna to have to take a path. You're going to have to make a choice. Uh, that choice is going to be you're going to rejoice in God, as, as it does in James. I didn't know what tomorrow I was going to bring. It's okay. Blessed are the flexible for not being been out of shape. Or you're going to get angry. You're going to get frustrated. God, you owed me. He doesn't owe you. He doesn't owe you anything. You're lucky. You're saved. You're blessed. You're saved. We've already been given all the grace we need. Right? Some of you are going to get a tax return coming up here soon, and it's not going to be what you thought it was. It isn't. Some of you might get more. Some of you are going to get less. Some of you are going to, oh, what are you going to do? I had a plan. I did everything I should have done. I, I, Lord, I, I put it all before you. I even prayed. But the problem is sometimes in our prayers, we even do that with our own control. You know, have you ever done this? You made a plan and then said, God, bless my plan? I have. Instead of, okay, I need to go to the Lord. I need to ask, okay, God, what is your game plan? And my wife and I, we've been dealing with this with our kids, with, with their education for each one of them. It's been different. God, what is your plan for us? You know, we do believe there is nothing wrong with public school. And there is nothing wrong with private school. There's nothing wrong with charter school. And there's nothing wrong with homeschool. What we believe is that God has given each parent... The responsibility to decide where their child gets educated. And it can be different for each kid. And so there's no judgment here, regardless of where you're at. So you go, okay, Lord, what is this you want for my kid? Because one thing I've seen, there's no, there's no perfect formula for making sure your kid turns out okay. There isn't. I know homeschooling parents, their kids are far from the Lord. I was public schooled, my parents did drugs for half of my life. I'm a pastor. So, no that doesn't deserve a plot. <laughs> do drugs, your kids will be pastors. go to ministry. Yeah. That's where we should go, ladies and gentlemen. No, I know I know why you're clapping. It's just I'm being silly. My, the point in it, the point in it is is just acknowledging you don't know what God is going to do. And there's that's where there's peace. And parents, there's peace there too because you don't know. Some of you, like we, like we, have been like, oh, God, this, this is a hard decision, and I don't know if it's right. You made a decision. Place it before the Lord. Let God work in it. God has an incredible way of working out everything the way it was supposed to be. And you and I can't see that now because we don't have, you know, as Westminster Confession, back to that point, we don't have the perfect knowledge, the perfect foreknowledge that God has. He'll work it out. He'll work it out. He'll work it out, and then all of a sudden, you have a little bit more joy and a little bit more peace. And I get to practice that when I leave here and snow blow the second half of my driveway. Amen. Um, if I could get my uh, pastoral team that's here to come forward, and they're going to pass out communion to you uh, first, the bread and then the juice. Let me see, uh, um, Jim. If you, Jim, if you'd uh, come on up, and missionary Jeff, would you come up too? be nice for the church to, if you guys, have... Jeff Jeff is here, there, and everywhere. This is Jeff Gilpin. If you haven't met Jeff, Jeff is our uh, Awana missionary. So he plants Awana clubs all over Nevada, Northern California too, right? Yep. Do I have enough over here? Where's, um? yeah, would you help out please? There we go, deacons too. Let me get this half here, it would be great. Um, and as they're handing that out, you know, one of the things that uh, I shared in the first service I think is important to share here, which ties into the message as we get ready to partake is, you know, it's easy, it's easy in life to kind of go about your daily routine and forget and acknowledge that God is in everything. You know, people ask me all the time, I don't know why, uh, maybe people are just intrigued at how a sermon comes together, but I get asked quite often. You know, what does it look like for me during the week to prepare to preach a sermon? And I do have kind of a system that I go about. And, you know, I do a certain thing on Monday and a certain thing on Tuesday and a certain thing on Wednesday and Thursday. And then I allow my sermon to kind of just seep in my mind and heart, for, you know, Friday and Saturday. And, uh, and then I preach it on Sunday. And, and, then, and then I try to put it behind me. I mean, literally, after I'm done preaching, I try not to, ever, like, really think about it. Because I can't, I can't change it, right? And there can be an incredible amount of angst and depression, especially when someone says, you know, you shouldn't have said that. And then you're like, well, you're right, I probably shouldn't have. But I did, so. And there's no just sense in, like, lingering on the mistake. You know, you, we've got great grace in God. Ask for forgiveness and move on. And, uh, and yet it, it, still, it still can be easy to turn your routine and your schedule, which all of us probably have some routine or schedule. Some of you... You know, like Matthew, you're going to go back to school and someone's going to go back to just the grind of what it is to parent. We're kind of entering into that phase, right? Like holidays are over, Christmas trees are put away, there's no more New Year's. We don't have to worry about any holidays for a while. We just get back into the school grind and back into all the things that we do, and it just can feel mundane. And Sundays can feel that way too. Come to church and we have a certain kind of liturgy, which is just a way of doing things. We sing, do announcements. Seeing, do communion every so often, have baptism and and I just I just you know, as we partake in communion and on Sundays and everything, just remember God's in everything. A part of the will of God is to is to acknowledge to acknowledge that God's will exists. You know, my plow guy came by after I'd already plowed, which which was super cool of him to do, and and um, and as he passed by I had options, right? One option was to look down and ignore him, just kind of be mean, you know, give him a dirty look or a thumbs up or whatever, right? Or to wave at him and to be thankful and, and to show him, like, genuinely, like, when you see somebody and you greet them and you know that, like, why you're greeting them and you acknowledge that God could be in that conversation, people notice something unique and different about you. When you say, hey, how, how are you? How are you doing? Thank you for helping. One of the things my wife does is she leaves a Christmas presents for the trash guys on it. She didn't do it this year, but. We normally do it. I'm sure the trash guys are, like, all upset they didn't get their Christmas gift this year. And, but we, that's something that she does, you know, just for the glory of the Lord. And, and as we partake in communion and we partake of the bread and we partake of the juice, there's nothing mundane or boring about this. We're celebrating this reality, right? The reality that Jesus intervened in our life. And he came and he grabbed us and he saved us and he removed from us the sin and the guilt and the shame that covers us. And just as we saw in baptism, we've been made new because of this death and because of his resurrection. We're new creatures in Christ. So, so the good news for us is we're not identified as sinners anymore. We're completely identified as saints. And we walk around with kind of a, a humble confidence, if, if I can say it that way. Because God does resist the proud, the arrogant, the one who lives for their life, but he gives grace to the humble. And the confidence is this. The confidence is in Christ. We boast in him alone. I I have the things I have, family, church, home, all God's grace, all God's blessing. I've done absolutely nothing to deserve it, and I'm painfully aware of it. And yet, God saw fit to bless me, and, and we have to give thanks and I mean, we should really, we should just say, man, Lord, thank you. You've given us a good church right here in the middle of town where we can gather together as fellow sinners slash saints and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying on behalf of our sins. Amen to that. Man, it's, it feels good for me to be in a room filled with people who are broken just like me. It feels great, and I'm thankful for it. But Lord, we we thank you for the sacrifice you made on our behalf. We thank you that we don't have to live on our own will, we don't have to try to plan on our own, but we can lay everything before you and say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And we trust you for it. Thank you, Lord, as we partake in communion now for your body given for us and your blood shed for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may partake. His body broken on our behalf. God bless you. Hey friends, let's stand together and um, be reminded of that Jesus is our living hope.